0: Like so many things in life, and this is what I tell people all the time, part of the key to to life and to, and to success is that success comes in layers and it's just showing up over and over and over and over and over because you, know, you, you might show up today and get rejected and then six months later you show up to the exact same person but the circumstances have changed and you're the greatest thing in the history of the world, right? All of a sudden now you're exactly what they're looking for. Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer
1: McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. I am so happy that you're here today because I'm talking with a very special guest someone that I admire and respect and someone who I've learned a great deal from over the past 10 years through his podcast, his books, and also by sometimes sharing stages with him speaking at conferences and events around the world. You know, it's funny that we both live in beautiful Cincinnati, Ohio, but we've actually crossed paths with each other more outside of our first city than we have within it. Todd Henry positions himself as an arms dealer for the creative revolution. And he teaches leaders and organizations how to establish practices that lead to everyday brilliance. He's the author of five books The Accidental Creative, Die Empty, Louder Than Words, Herding Tigers, and the latest, The Motivation Code. And he speaks and consults across dozens of industries on creativity, leadership, and passion for work. Todd is also the host of the Accidental Creative podcast, where he offers weekly tips for how to stay prolific, brilliant, and healthy. And it's been downloaded over 10 million times. When I saw that he was releasing his latest book, his fifth, in early October, I immediately bought a copy to keep my streak going of having read all of his books. And I also reached out to ask if he would join me on the podcast to share more about it with you. I was thrilled when he said yes right away. And I think you'll enjoy learning more about his books, as well as how you can do the best work of your life. Well, welcome, Todd Henry, to the Impact Makers podcast today. I am so excited. We're here in Cincinnati together, but like a lot of great people here in Cincinnati, we actually don't see each other that much. So the chance to connect with you is always a blessing. And I look forward to learning from you today, as I always do. But maybe you can share with everyone listening a little bit about who you are and, and what you actually do.
0: I'm happy to. We, we are alone together right now. That, that's <laughs> true sort to of the way we can say Yes. So I, let's see, boy, I I grew up in central Ohio, sort of out in the middle of nowhere, very, very rural environment, kind of a free range kid, you know, would hop on my bike and ride for miles and miles with my parents having no clue where I was. (gasps) Shocker, right? (laughs) To to, to the parents that, uh, you know, no cell phones, no trackers. I didn't have like a little, you know, tile tracker on me to like, you know, alert my parents to my GPS location. Like I would just kind of go out and do whatever. And it's funny because looking back now, I realized so much of my path in life was probably defined by those early days of creative freedom. Of you know, if we wanted to do something, we were 45 minutes from the nearest mall and 45 minutes from the nearest movie theater. So if we wanted to do something fun, we had to invent it. We did all kinds of crazy things like. Uh, we tried to make a helicopter out of a lawnmower engine, which was probably a terrible idea. As as one does, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Like we could have like decapitated ourselves so easily doing that. But you know, hey, I mean, just crazy things like the making movies, doing music, making music. So anyway, went to school when I graduated high school, uh, went to college, studied marketing at Miami University and graduated from Miami. And, uh, you know, kind of like you do, decided I wanted to make a run at being a full-time musician because that's kind of what you do, right? When you just invested four years in a marketing education, you go and you play music full-time. That's what you do. Uh, but sense, I had yeah. paid part of my way through school playing music. And so I thought, Hey, maybe I, you know, I've actually, I'm making some money doing this. Maybe I could actually make a living. And so anyway, did that for a number of years, got to tour, got to open for a bunch of really great bands and play big theaters and big festivals. And it was really fun, played on some big stages, but right around the year 2000 or in the year 2000, I, you know, as the story goes, I met a girl and uh, she, she was in Cincinnati and sort of convinced me that music business, gainful employment, and marrying an amazing woman. Like you can have two of these three, but you can't have all three at the same time. So I chose gainful employment, marrying an amazing woman. Good choice. And- Amazing choice. Right. Um, otherwise I might be like the, you know, 40 year old part-time musician slash, you know, like barista or something right now, which is nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying like my path, my life would have taken a very different path probably had, had I not done that. But anyway, so ended up, I'll kind of condense a little bit, ended up as the creative director for a nonprofit and led a team of, um, you know, a bunch of people trying to figure out how create on demand every day, how to go to work and make it up and solve problems. And you know, I was working with writers and designers and videographers and all these amazing people. And in the midst of that, heard about this new medium called podcasting. So right around 2005, I was kind of wanting someplace to talk about some of these things that we were experiencing, this create on demand stuff that we were experiencing as a team, uh, some of the dynamics. And I started a podcast in 2005 called The Accidental Creative. And just kind of put it out there. It was kind of just like a little fun, creative side project for me and kind of didn't really pay attention to it. And I came back a couple of months later. I think I, I think I released three episodes at the beginning. Came back a couple of months later to look for podcasts to listen to. And I, I noticed on iTunes at the time that there was a podcast called The Accidental Creative that was one of the top podcasts on iTunes. And... Jennifer, my first thought was, oh, no, I can't believe I stole someone else's name. I didn't check first to make sure there wasn't another podcast called The Actional Criminal, But it was my podcast that was like one of the top... I had no idea people were listening to this thing, you know? I and mean, so then all of a sudden, I realized, oh, I need to kind of like have a website. I need to actually put something together here to support this because it was just kind of this fun little side project I was doing. And so that was pretty cool that initially there were thousands of people just listening to the show and over the next couple of years things grew and I started getting invitations to go and talk at you know conferences or speak to companies and so you know a company would fly me across the country to speak at some marketing team meeting and then I would you know, take the red eye back and be sitting in a team meeting the next day for my creative team that was leading and I just realized after a while you know what these paths are kind of diverging and then in the midst of that I, I was offered a book deal by Penguin Random House for my first book The Accidental Creative that was in 2009 and so that was when I realized okay I think I need to dive into this full time so really for the last decade I've been writing books I have five books now with Penguin Random House at the time it was just Penguin now it's Penguin Random House five books with them. that have been published in the last decade. And I travel the world working with teams, teaching teams how to be prolific, brilliant, and healthy all at the same time and uh, helping teams unleash their best work every day. And in non-pandemic times, I spend a lot of time in front of big groups of people doing that. But in pandemic times, I'm mostly doing that kind of the way we're doing it right now, you know, Mm -hmm. online. But uh, either way, it's a lot of fun to get to help people unleash their best work.
1: Well, hi, I you know, and have been connected with you for years. I've been a big fan for a long time, but I didn't know. So the first book actually came because of the podcast that they found you that way or
0: it did. Yeah. So I mean, it was kind of a combination of a lot of things. So in so the first podcast was released in two thousand and five. 2007 this is the part of the story where you know it always there's always that kind of like and then a major national magazine wrote an article about me right kind of <laughs> thing. it's like uh, well that's all you have to do if you want to succeed is just have a major national publication but um US News and World Report was doing a an article on creativity in the workplace and they chose the Axiom Creative podcast as kind of the feature of that article which was really cool And so the editor at the time of that section, the business section of U.S. News and World Report was Kimberly Palmer. Kimberly Palmer went on then to write her own book that was agented by the person who... When, when reading her proposal said, Oh, this, this guy sounds interesting because she had quoted me in her book proposal. And so she came and checked me out. And so the agent reached out to me and said, Hey, would you like to write a book about some of these things that you're talking about on your podcast? And I said, sure. I practically reached through the internet and signed a an agent agreement with her right there. And so then, you know, within a couple of months after, agreeing to work with her, we had a book deal with Portfolio, which is an imprint of Penguin, which frankly was a dream for me because all of the books on my bookshelf were portfolio books, right? Like Seth Godin and Simon Sinek and all these people that I'd been reading, you know, was pretty, pretty amazing. So yeah, so that's kind of the progression of that is, and like so many things in life, and this is what I tell people all the time, part of the key to to life and to, and to success is that success comes in layers. And it's just showing up over and over and over and over and over because you know you you might show up today and get rejected. And then six months later, you show up to the exact same person, but the circumstances have changed and you're the greatest thing in the history of the world, right? All of a sudden now you're exactly what they're looking for. And so I think the the big part of that was just I mean, I almost gave up the podcast multiple times between 2005 and 2007 because it just got really hard. I mean, I'm working a full-time job. I've got three kids. My wife and I are actually running a nonprofit in our spare time to help fund international adoption. And we've got all... My wife's working a job, a very full-time job. We've got all these things going on. And I said, you know what? This is a fun hobby, but I just can't do this anymore. I almost gave up, but I just kept going, kept going. I would get up at 5.30 in the morning, work from 5.30 to 7am and 8.30 to 11 every single day for like multiple years to get this thing going. And it was just showing up, showing up, showing up. And then eventually, I got in front of the right person at the right time and opportunity came. But you know, had I given up, I mean, things would have still been fine, but I had no idea what would have, you know, I would have had no idea what what could have been in front of me if I hadn't continued showing up. So I think that's, you know, just career advice wise, persistence. That's why persistence is so important because It may not be you. It may not be you and your talent. It may just be that the timing is off for whatever reason right now.
1: Right. So now here you are, what, one, two, three, four, five books in. And so you didn't set out to be a a writer. That wasn't on your list of things you wanted to accomplish someday.
0: No, I, I have, I had no intent of becoming an author, frankly. And I still have little love for the process of writing. I mean, I don't really <laughs> enjoy writing at all, but I love the outcome of writing. Yeah. I love that writing affords me the opportunity to introduce ideas into the world in a way that they can't otherwise get into people's minds. And so for me, that's really the... My love of the writing process has little to do with the actual writing and more to do with the fact that it, it introduces the opportunity for me to put ideas out into the world in a way that they're accessible to people. Interesting. So tell me kind of like uh, what
1: the, the summation of The Accidental Creative, the book was. Or tell yeah, I so know, to to, I have it, but tell everybody else.
0: <laughs> <laughs> both, you haven't read my book yet. Okay, yeah. So, so The Accidental Creative, the subtitle is how to be brilliant at a moment's notice. And the key there is, you know, we all have to do that from time to time. We have to be brilliant at a moment's notice. The key is, to doing that is if you want to be brilliant at the moment's notice, you have to begin far upstream from the moment you need a brilliant idea. And the way you do that is by building practices and rhythms and infrastructures into your life to prepare you for those moments when you have to deliver a great idea on demand. So really focused on five key areas, focus, relationships, energy, stimuli, and hours, and some of the key practices in those areas that can prepare you for those moments when you have to deliver the goods under pressure.
1: So it's definitely a timeless book. It's something that, you know, is just as relevant today as it was when you wrote it, correct?
0: Yeah. And that that was kind of the intent, you know, I mean, I really, all of my books, I really try to get to as much as I can get to governing dynamics. I think that's, what's really helpful for people. I think quick fixes and, you know, sort of external system, systemic kinds of things that really are, designed to achieve a quick outcome aren't necessarily as helpful in the long run as if you really do a deep dive and get to the governing dynamics, not just what's happening, but why is it happening? And so that's really with all my books, especially the Axon Creative, but all of my books after that, that's what I really wanted to do is to try to get to those governing dynamics of the creative process.
1: Interesting. So the next book was called Die Empty. Was it in your mind the next step in the progression or how did the idea for Die Empty come up?
0: yeah it's, it's funny because I'll, and and you'll see a pattern all of my books the, the seed of my next book is always drawn from the previous book so the accidental creative was about organizing yourself so that you're producing great work every day that was really what it was primarily about the very last story in the Accidental Creative was the story that starts off the book, Die Empty, which is the story about you know the most valuable land in the world being the graveyard, quoting the late Miles Monroe. And then that became the seed for Die Empty. So we, the Accidental Creative asked the question, are you structuring your life in a way that you're going to produce great work? Die Empty really asked the question, okay, you're structuring to produce great work, but are you producing the right work? Are you putting the right work into the world? Are you leaving your best work inside of you? And so it really examined the seven common areas where people and teams get stuck. And what's been surprising to me about this book is, yeah, I really felt like this was kind of a step back and more of kind of a... Uh, 50,000 foot view at life and work and all of these kinds of things and really kind of felt more like a self-development angle than what I'm normally comfortable with. But I have been invited to speak to more C-suite senior leader groups about this book and to walk them through these dynamics than really any of my other books, which is kind of surprising to me. Mm -hmm. Those seven key areas are aimlessness boredom, comfort, delusion, ego, fear, and guardedness. Those are what I call the seven deadly sins. And uh, those are the forces that disrupt our ability to produce a body of work we can be proud of.
1: Uh, You're getting an A plus for being able to recite all the concepts from these books you've written (laughs) uh, a while ago. But that's interesting. Why do you think these uh, C-level leaders or leaders of
0: organizations
1: are interested in that premise
0: of the book? I think it's primarily because we get so lost in the weeds you know we're so tactically great that we lose sight of what it is we're really trying to do and so just having a framework through which to look at life and work and and ask okay aimlessness have we become our, our, you know we're getting our work done we're accomplishing our tasks but have we become disconnected from the productive passion of our organization you know, do we have a clear through line in all the work that we're doing right now? Or are we just kind of moving forward by sheer momentum um, instead of strategically driving the work forward? Busy boredom. Are we asking the right questions? Are we staying creatively viable? Are we challenging assumptions? Or are we just slipping into ghost rules uh, and allowing those to define our work? So these are the kinds of questions that are inconvenient questions for organizations, but they're the exact kinds of things that people at that level of the organization need to be asking because they're uniquely positioned to be able to implement strategies that can move the organization in a more productive way. So I think that's probably why is because the framework itself introduces questions that we normally don't ask when everything seems to be going well. We only ask them when something goes off the rails. Mm -hmm. Part of the job of a a leader is to ensure that we're staying ahead of the trends, the trend lines so that we're not reacting to what's going on, but instead we're strategically building where we want to go.
1: Yeah. Well, I love this kind of for me. It's interesting to kind of hear the journey for the books. So the next one's actually my favorite, Louder than words. So we, we died empty. Now now we need to learn how to speak. <laughs> hey, right. yeah,
0: so, so again, the A creative is about are you structuring your life to do great work? Die Empty is are you doing the right work? Louder than words was about putting that work in the world in a way that's going to resonate with other people. Because if you don't refine your voice, if you don't have a clear and defined creative voice, nobody's going to pay attention to what you're doing. So in that book, I looked at the, the key elements of resonant voices in the marketplace. And they were authenticity, uniqueness, precision, empathy, and timing. And if we want our voice to resonate, we really have to have all of those things. Authenticity is not transparency. Authenticity is about showing people that you have skin in the game right? Uniqueness is understanding your unique defining qualities and making sure that what you're saying is positioned in a way that it's it's going to stand apart from what everybody else is saying. Even if you're saying the same thing, you have to find a way of saying it in to your unique uh, perspective. Precision. You know, a lot of people get really vague in how they communicate because they want to make sure that if they're wrong, that they can somehow still make it look like they were right. You know, so you often see politicians, they get really fuzzy about policy Choices or about how you know which positions they're taking because they don't want to be precise. Because if they're precise, they can be held to account. But if you want your voice to resonate, you have to be precise because it earns trust with your listener. Empathy we have to think through the lens of the people we're communicating with and not through our own lens. And then finally, timing. And we mentioned this earlier you can have the right message, it can be precise, authentic, unique, all of these things. But if it's not timed well, it's, it's not going to matter. And so we have to do an analysis timing as well and make sure we're communicating our message in a way that it is likely to land with the, our intended audience that people we're trying to communicate with.
1: Now, is that something, uh, these concepts for, for this book in particular, was that what you had learned over the journey of the last few years of the first two books? Did that come to light during that time? Or again, was it just kind of the next next step in the progression?
0: yeah it was definitely one of the as, as you know, one of the great benefits of doing the work that we do is that over time we have you know doors are open to us that maybe aren't open to everyone, so we get to talk with a lot of people. I know you've talked with a lot of leaders of industry as of I and so over time you begin to see patterns emerge you know among the people who are really successful and some of the people maybe who you meet who you know, don't really, for whatever reason, don't really spark your interest or your curiosity. And so uh, it was just kind of interesting to hear some of the people at the top of their game talking about, you know, their experiences and what seems to be resonating with what they're doing. And that's kind of where those patterns came from. Was just kind of looking at those conversations and looking at the work people were doing, certain leaders in the marketplace, and, you know, asking the question, okay, what is it that ties them all together? And that's how we landed on those five categories. Okay. So your first three books were kind of adding fuel to the
1: fire for creatives. Then the fourth one is herding tigers where you're talking about how to lead those people. Again, was that kind of like, okay, now I've I've built up this army of creatives. I've got to teach somebody how to lead them.
0: Yeah. So I would be out speaking at an event or a conference or something. And you know, people would come up to me and say, Hey Todd, I love your books. They've been so helpful to me personally. Thank you so much for, for all that you've done to help me structure my life and do my best work. That's amazing. Thank you for doing that. By the way, Let me tell you about my leader and how terrible they are and how they won't let me do anything that you're telling me to do and all these things. And so I realized informing and helping creatives structure their life is only going to go so far if we don't have an effective leadership framework through which to work. And so um, that's why Herding Tigers, I felt like was an important next book. I wanted to make sure I was framing all of these first three books up through a leadership lens and saying, okay, here's how we manage focus relationships, energy stimuli hours for the creative people on our team. Here's how we instill stability and challenge. Those are the two things that creative professionals need. They need both stability and challenge. And both of those, they they both exist in tension with one another, right? So how do we challenge our team? while at the same time, providing the structure and the clarity of expectations and the protection and all the things they need in order to do their work, but at the same time, make them feel challenged and push them and speak courage into them and encourage risk and all of the things that creative people need in order to feel like they're thriving. So Herding Tigers really is targeted at managers of highly talented, creative people and helping them understand what those people need from them and how to instill it more consistently.
1: Yeah, well, before we talk about the newest book, which has recently come out that we'll spend some time chatting about today, I'm just fascinated that you, in each of your books, you have both these overarching governing principles that are applicable across industries and people, but that you've been able to recite the guiding frameworks for all the books. So when you're writing a book, is it important for you or how does your process work? Do you kind of start with, well, what are the five principles that I'll discuss or what are the seven takeaways? How do you do that?
0: There's always a framework at the beginning, my editor calls it an idea set. There, there has to be a, a clear and defining idea set for every book. I and mean, that usually begins with a book proposal. So I will write out a proposal for every book, and sometimes it's just an outline. Sometimes it's more substantial, depending on the nature of the book. For the for the latest book, it was much more substantial. It was like a forty or fifty page, I think, book proposal because I wanted to more clearly articulate some of the research that went into it, but. It's really important to begin with a framework when you're when you're writing a book. I, I don't just write and see what comes out. Um, I always want to make sure I understand clearly what it is I'm trying to communicate. Now that framework sometimes changes in the middle of the book. I remember with Die Empty specifically, I fluctuated between. You know, having it be a, a smaller set of chapters versus maybe having like 52 chapters that were smaller, that were, you know, one chapter per week for a, a year. Like we went back and forth with all these different models and frameworks and everything. And I was about a month from my deadline, and I was pretty far off from hitting my deadline. Um, yeah, I wasn't necessarily gonna get there in the next month. And I remember Adrian's Vacheim, who was the publisher at, at Portfolio, my my imprint, he was my publisher. And or is my publisher. And he came in and he said, um, let me ask you a question, Todd. Are you are you trying to write a book that has advice that is applicable to anyone and everyone throughout all time? Or are you just trying to offer some really good advice to people? And I said, well, I'm just trying to offer some really good advice to people. And he's like, and, and it'll probably be applicable like 80% of the time to most people, most of the time. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's right. He's like, well, then... Just do that. Just write a book that, you know, because I was so caught up on making sure everything was absolutely perfect. And there were all these contingencies in place for, it. and if this is the case, you know, he said, yeah, people are smart. People can figure it out. What people need are frameworks to help them think. They don't need you to think for them. They need frameworks to help you think. Right. And so that was very helpful to me. And he said, and also, by the way, if Maybe all that you've written, all the 60,000 words you've written so far needs to be reduced to 10,000 words that is one chapter in a very different book. That's fine because this book has to be good. So if it's going to take you another year, two years to write this book, that's fine. That's great. Um, Because the most important thing is that this book is a good book. That kind of freedom from the publisher and also from my editors and everybody else I've worked with over time has really sort of helped me, I think, feel free to explore ideas and and follow them where they where they lead and where they take me. But that always begins with a strong framework, always, of ideas, because I don't think you should write a book unless you know what you want to say. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think you should write a book to figure, I mean, I know some people disagree with that, but you know, some people say that they write in order to discover what they think. And I think that's true in a micro sense, but in a macro sense, I think you have to understand the general arc of what you want to say before you start. And then some of the stuff that gets you there, obviously, can be a surprise along the way. Mm-hmm. But the idea set is usually pretty consistent.
1: Interesting. So the latest book, we're, we're recording this in October, came out this month. Uh, the Motivation Code, which I have, I have it and I am a little bit into it. So I haven't finished it yet. So I'm learning along with everyone else who's been able to purchase the book. It seems like it's a little bit of a departure from kind of the path you've been on. So, uh, you know, I know what you you said in the introduction about how it started, but tell me a little bit more about why the motivation code.
0: Yeah, um, I had no intent of writing this book. <laughs> I, about four years ago, a friend of mine, Rod Penner, who was a 20-year veteran of a management consulting firm. Um, he had left that management consulting firm, I think in 2009. And I wasn't really sure exactly what he'd been up to since. I knew he was doing some private equity investment and whatever. But he emailed me out of the blue and he said, Hey, Todd, I want you to take this motivation assessment that the team and I have been working on. And found out he'd been working with a team of PhDs and researchers and all these people who have been doing this research for decades, by the way. And so I don't know about you, Jennifer. I mean, I'm sure you're probably pretty steeped in the assessment world but when somebody asked me to take an assessment my eyes roll to the back of my head and i start getting this you know numb look on my face because i mean the last thing i want is another set of letters to attach to myself right like i'm an intp you Mm -hmm. um but i knew rod i trusted rod so i took this motivation code assessment and frankly what i discovered completely blew me away it did You know, I I discovered patterns in my life that had always been there, that I'd always suspected but didn't really have terms for. I didn't really understand what they were. But then once I took this assessment and it revealed to me what my core motivators are, I realized, oh, that's why I always have conflict with this person. Oh, that's why I always get myself in trouble when I take on this kind of project. Oh, that's why I always seem to thrive when I do these kinds of things. It just revealed to me things that I'd, I'd never really had terms for. So... I was hooked. I mean, from five minutes after I took the assessment and had the conversation with Rod, I was completely hooked. And Rod had asked me if I would be willing to write a book about this research. The problem was that I was already under contract to write another book called Herding Tigers that we talked about before um, that was due to come out in 2018. So I've been working on this book in the background for about four years now okay. and really trying to make sure we get all of the research. Uh, that I'm, I'm explaining the research properly because it's it's really rooted in over 50 years of research. It was begun by a guy named Arthur Miller Jr. back in the late 1960s. He interviewed people from all walks of life, people at the top of every industry. We uh, have accumulated over a million achievement stories and parsed that, uh, really that that incredible repository of achievement stories and the language in those achievement stories into what we call the 27 themes of motivation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we look at the ways that people describe what it is that drives them, we've discovered that there really are about 27 unique ways that people talk about why certain achievements are important to them, why, why certain sh- achievements continue to motivate them even to this day, mm-hmm. even if they were years and years and years ago, you know? And so those 27 themes of motivation became the framework for what is now called the motivation code assessment. Um, there's a whole slew of PhDs on our team who've been working on this assessment for a long time and validating and making sure that everything holds together. And so, um, that's, that's why so many people who take it like myself, I think you as well, although we haven't really delved into your results yet report that, yeah, you, you, you nailed me. Right. And and part of it is because, you know, this language, it's not, we didn't just sit around and think up like, I wonder what motivates people. Let's just come up with Okay, 27, that's all we can think of, right? This really is the result of how people describe for themselves and what language they specifically use. This is really the result of all of that being compiled and distilled from over a million achievement stories over the course of many decades.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like you said, your eyes roll back when people ask you to take assessments. When somebody asks me, I'm like, yes, please. Um <laughs> I love to take them and, and I, you know, I could probably recite some of the common themes that my assessments, I think I mentioned to you when you, you asked about me taking this one, I said, you know, if there's a D word on it, directive, dominant, you know, any of those kind of hard, (laughs) hard leadership tendencies, I tend to fall into those. But even when I took the MCODE assessment, you know, the part about writing the achievement stories. I could have probably guessed what my top one was, but I would not have really brought that to the forefront in describing myself in the past. So I I always find them insightful. But I guess, you know, I shared my results with you and, and it comes back with your top motivators. And I was talking with another friend recently, you know, my top motivator being meet the challenge, which I would have you know, once I started writing down the stories for the assessment, I was like, okay, I see what's happening here. But then I also kind of looked back and I said, wow, you know, here we are, we're in the midst of a pandemic. My life has completely changed in the last eight months in terms of what I do and how I do that. And then I almost felt guilty because why have I not been able to meet the challenge if that's the number one thing that I'm motivated by? Is this where you you tell people to go to therapy, or you, you say, <laughs> <laughs> or your your motivation challenge assessment? I like the workbook. I'm working my way through that. You know, is that yeah. something that that I can use that insight to figure out, or what?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So so this is this is the beautiful thing about all of this research is that we've been able to look at a lot of people over a very long period of time and look at the patterns and and see both the positive sides of these motivations but also what we call the shadow sides of these motivations right and um, i think most of us in the midst of this pandemic have been experiencing malaise we've been experiencing a bit of a funk not all of it is purely the result of just the general anxiety about being in the middle of a pandemic i think some of it is the result of the fact that we had Pre-pandemic, many of us had figured out ways of scratching these motivational itches. You know whether that be you know the kinds of ways that we approach our work when we're at you know in the workplace or maybe some other like hobbies that we had developed that maybe we can't do right now because you know we can't go places or relationships that we used to have you know meeting people for coffee or whatever like we had discovered ways of scratching these itches maybe accidentally over time and now all of those support structures have been taken away And so, you know, if you don't mind, I would love to share a couple of things I noticed from your motivation code. Um, (laughs) Please, okay, because
1: this this is therapy. Yay.
0: So your motivation code, by the way, is what we, that's what we call your top three to five motivations. It, it all depends on how your motivations rank right So sometimes there's a very clear break between like number three and number four where okay three of them ranked really really high and then four and five were down a little bit or sometimes it's your top four or at, at, usually at the most we say your top five, even if number six is kind of close, usually the top five will give us a really clear sense of your motivation codes. I noticed that your number one, as you mentioned, is meet the challenge. It's a wonderful motivation. And I say that because it's also in my top three motivations. So it's the best, right? The best. <laughs> we have met the challenge by making that one of our top motivations. And it, what that means is that you're inspired to tackle something. If you want me, by the way, you often meet the challenge is what we call my trigger motivation. So we have their trigger motivations, process motivations, and outcome motivations, right? Trigger motivations are the ones that typically... Peak your interest and get you involved in something. Process motivations are the ones that keep you engaged with that activity over a long period of time. And outcome motivations are the things that are driving us to achieve, you know, a certain outcome of some sort. I mean, typically motivations will fall into one of those categories. Some of them span you know, a couple categories, but often meet the challenge as a trigger motivation. So if you come to me and you say, Todd, I don't know if this is possible, but like I'm already in, like, I, you don't have to say anything else after the, but I'm already in because you have just triggered my meet the challenge motivation. What you're saying is, I don't know if you can do this. I'm right. like, of course I can do it. What is it? Tell me I can do it. You know, um, does that sound familiar? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's yeah.
1: like, wait, just watch me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so that's beautiful. That's beautiful. But we also have to be mindful of that as people driven to meet the challenge because, on more than we can reasonably do. We can operate sometimes operate out of our skill set because we want to challenge ourselves to do something new, even though maybe we're not yet equipped to be able to do what we want to do. And so I'll do that all the time. I'll take on a project. I mean, I remember it's funny. I remember to go back to the music thing. Okay. And, and by the way, when we talk about motivation, one of the things we've discovered is motivation is sustained, meaning that what motivates us now is... Probably pretty similar to what motivated us 10, 20, 30 years ago. Over the course of time, we've had people take the assessment over the span of as much as 10 years. And even though there's a little shifting, maybe in their top two or three, generally motivations stay about the same over time, which is really interesting. When I was younger, I think I was right out of college, maybe like two months out of college, living with my parents in that transition period before I went and got an apartment kind of thing. You know, I just sort of moved home from school and I decided I was going to start a Recording studio slash marketing business for other people. The problem was, I didn't have any equipment. I basically had like the equivalent of like unbelievably amateur recording gear. My design, like my marketing design skills, were basically ordering some templates from a company and just like printing people's stuff on top of those templates. But I convinced a band to drive like an hour and a half from where they were located to come record in my dad's office at my parents' house, like a, like, like a real recording studio. We had like cable snaked throughout the house or whatever. Frankly, they were very disappointed with the results. I know (laughs) they were, but that's, that's typical of somebody driven to meet the challenge, right? I'm like, well, sure I can do it. Why can't I do it? Of course I can do it. Well, I probably should have known better. So once we begin to understand that about ourselves, we can we can ask some more meaningful questions like, okay, am I only doing this because it's a challenge for me? Or is this really the right next strategic step for me to take? Another thing meet the challenge people sometimes do is, and I don't know about this for you, but for me, I tend to maybe push things off until the last minute. And the reason I do that is because it's a lot more thrilling for me to try to crank something out five hours before it's due than it is to spend you know five hours over the course of three weeks doing it. And so I find that I tend to kind of, well, I've got a couple weeks to work on that. Well, the reason I'm doing that is because I want it to feel more challenging to me. And so people driven to meet the challenge tend to procrastinate. So I've had to put systems in my life to do a little bit of work each day. I time block and do a little bit of work each day on important things, even if they're not due for a couple of weeks, because I know my tendency is to put things off. Okay. Now, does that resonate as well? Does that sound? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So your number two motivation is make an impact. And this is the one I really want to center on because we're talking about how during these times, so many of our motivations aren't being scratched those driven to make an impact, which by the way, is my number three, or my number one, actually my number one motivation, want to see the direct impact of our work. Okay. We, we need to feel like we're making an impact. We need to see that impact. We want to make the kind of impact we want to make. We don't want somebody else to define the impact for us. We want to make the impact we want to make. The way I describe it to people sometimes is, this is true in my life. I'll be invited to a meeting where I'm just supposed to sit in and listen to everybody else, you know, sort of talk. And I'm supposed to just sort of you know, get a a sense of the vibe of the meeting. And within seven minutes, I'm standing at the whiteboard with a marker in my hand outlining the next five years of the business, whatever it is, right? (laughs) Because for me, it's important that I'm making an impact. I can't just sit around. I have to make an impact. That's part of the shadow side of this motivation, right? The gift of it is you do have impact, that you do want to see results. The, the, The shadow side is sometimes you try to make an impact where it's not welcome. So how does that affect us right now? Well, we're not seeing a lot of the impact of our work. I mean, you and I are both used to being on stage in front of thousands of people at a time where people nod, where people come up to you after and say, wow, you really helped me think this through in a new way. Or, oh, you know, I really love your book or, oh, I really, you know, those kinds of things are really useful, really helpful. That's great. But we're not getting that right now. We're staring into a camera and hoping that somewhere on the other side of that camera is impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's really hard for us because we don't see the tangible physical results of our efforts in a way that we really crave as somebody driven to make an impact. Does that resonate right now with you?
1: Yeah. I mean, this podcast is called Impact Makers, you know.
0: <laughs> there, there you go.
1: <laughs> and it's it's I love the way you kind of frame that for me. Now I'll have to to continue the workbook and and with going through the book to figure out how to use that because I guess, where I've been over the last few months, as I've kind of struggled, you know, as everyone has struggled to how do you reinvent yourself or how do you do what you do in a different way? And there certainly are ways to have an impact. Anybody can have an impact by just helping someone across the street. You know, so it's not necessary to stand on a big stage to do that. But it's almost made me feel like, as I've evaluated kind of where I am and where I'm headed, was I being selfish, was the impact about how it made me feel versus what I thought was truly trying to make a difference for others. And I still believe I get really excited about making other people see how they can have an impact in the world. That's how I view my work is I want to help you step into your power, step into what you have the opportunity to do. And I guess to your point, I could see that when I met with people face-to-face or from a stage because either people were giving me that affirmation on their facial expressions or coming up afterwards. And while it's still possible to do that over a Zoom call or a Zoom conference, it's not as visible. So I'm not mm-hmm. broken, I guess, maybe. Is that it?
0: No, and 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 you raised a really interesting point, which is every motivation is a gift. We should not feel guilty for the way that we're motivated. Number one, because we need people motivated in all different kinds of ways. I'm so glad that there are people motivated to make an impact because a lot of what we see in the world is the result of people who are like, I want to see an impact for my work. Right? It's not selfish to want to satisfy that motivation the most selfish thing you can do is keep that motivation to yourself and feel guilty about that. No, we need you out there. You know, just like we need people driven to collaborate. There's some people in the world who are driven by the theme we call collaborate, which is basically, I just want to be on a team. I just want to be a part of a high functioning team and I want to, you know, connect with others and just share ideas. And like I come alive when I'm just working with other people, right? That's not me, but that's some people. We need those people. But but everybody can't be driven to collaborate because then maybe we never actually get things done, right? We also need people driven to achieve potential or people driven to bring to completion. These are other themes. Like we need the gifts that each person brings to the table. I, I know some people are driven by a theme that we call evoke recognition. Mm-hmm. And they feel really bad. That you know, sometimes feel guilty when they discover this. That like one of my core motivators is when other people recognize the work that I do, and when they call me out, you know, for for the work that I'm doing, I mean, they feel guilty about that. I'm like, don't don't feel guilty. That's just that's what lights you up. That's fine. That's great. That's nothing to feel ashamed of. It just means that's something that lights you up. Just like other people are driven to collaborate. Some people are driven to serve. Some people like you or me were driven to meet the challenge or make an impact. Or another one of mine is influence behavior so when i'm talking to somebody if they're nodding their head that's like narcotics to somebody driven to you know influence behavior uh sometimes my wife will say to me you've just said the same things five times in a row why do you keep repeating yourself i'm like i'm just waiting for you to show me that it's sinking in (laughs) you're trying to influence behavior i shouldn't feel guilty about the way i'm driven but once we understand how each other is driven so if i know that you are driven to meet the challenge And let's say I'm your manager. I know I'm going to have to find ways of helping you structure your work so it feels like a consistent challenge to you, right? Or I'm going to have to make sure that you're not doing a lot of process work. That that that's not really where you're going to thrive. That I'm going to have to find ways of structuring projects that are going to feel a little bit beyond your reach. It's going to kind of keep you moving forward, keep you feeling engaged with what you're doing. I also know probably you're probably going to be prone to like blowing things up and trying to do new things because once they start feeling a little boring to you, you're going to want a new challenge to tackle, you know, yeah. and sometimes that's not always helpful. So, we might need to put somebody else around you who can manage the things that you create so that you can continue to go off and create new things without feeling like you like you have to go back and just keep managing the thing that you are managing, you know. Yeah. Launching the podcast was amazing for me in 2005. It felt like a challenge, it was something new. I've been doing it for 15 years now. We've crossed 10 million downloads of the podcast. You know, we've got like lots of people listening to the show and it kind of feels more like a process to me now. It doesn't feel challenging. And so I have to find ways of keeping the podcast engaging and challenging for me because it just feels like the, this is the thing I do every week. I just do a couple of episodes of the podcast and it's time to do the podcast again. So I've had to find ways of myself engaged with it. as a proper person. I'm a so, we shouldn't feel guilty about our motivations. We shouldn't feel guilty about the way our motivations drive us, but we do have to be aware of those shadow side attributes that can take root from time to time and prevent us from engaging fully with who we are.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really excited again to continue through the process because I think it's it's very helpful. I also like to look at, you know, was it 27 motivations or 25? Uh, 27 so it's also interesting to look at the bottom five and to get a chuckle from that so my top five were meet the challenge make an impact be central yeah bring control and achieve potential and then my bottom five the very last one make it right that just makes me laugh (laughs) I don't care if it's right let's just make an impact people
0: that's very typical that's actually very typical right that for you it's not about making sure that everything is optimized the way it needs to be you just want to get it out there and let it have impact in the and world then, yeah
1: and then you mentioned earlier uh, while well, we were talking about one of your other books about being unique yeah. and that's next to the last for me so I think that also made me laugh it's like I just want to do good work I don't really care if it's different you know I don't I don't have to be you know, the goth kid in, in this school. I don't need to be different right. or unique. I just right. want to make, I just want to make good work. So I think people will be fascinated by this. You know, everybody's, many people are excited to hear people talking about their, the Enneagram is the only assessment that I have not yet taken. And I'm actually, maybe that says something about my motivations. I haven't taken it because everybody takes it and talks about it. So I'm like, I'm not doing it. <laughs> maybe I will someday soon I I have it on my um, list of things that I might do someday but I I like work like this with the sim code assessments and the book and the worksheets that go with it because it allows me to really work through understanding my motivations how I can apply them well and as you said (laughs) I thought it was funny yeah I sent mine to a friend of mine and she pulled out that shadow side attribute of over impacting over-impacting. She's like, is that even possible? I'm like, yeah, probably.
0: <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. You know, like in the example I gave before, or like for me, you know, you know for, for a leader who's driven to make an impact. Okay. So for a manager coming in, everything might be working great. Everything might be exactly what really what you need to do is just kind of manage what's already there and just squeeze a little more efficiency out of it. But instead, you blow it up and you start something new. Why? Because you need to see the impact of your work. You don't want to be managing the impact of somebody else's work. You need to see the impact of your work. So you're going to come in, you're going to blow things up. And everybody's going to be saying, why are we? Why are we doing this? It makes no sense. It was working fine. Well, it's because you were driven to make an impact. So for hiring as well. And this is really important for hiring. You need to ask, okay, what is required of a person coming into this role? What are we going to be out of this person? And then if they take the code assessment and you realize, oh, you know what? Their top motivation is make an impact. And really, we just want them to come in and just kind of manage a process that's already in place. That could be a struggle for them. Mm-hmm. So you need to at least have that conversation and say, here's what we're keeping our eye on. Whereas if, if it is somebody who's coming in and maybe their top motivation is make it work, you know, which is an, like an efficiency optimization kind of role or uh, motivation. Great. Because really what we want to do is squeeze more efficiency out of what's already here. Great. That's That's the kind of person maybe you want leading that organization at this mm-hmm. point in time. And so it just really helps you gain a little bit of clarity about fit and, you know, sort of the, the right person in the right time in the right place. Because anyone driven by any one of these motivations could be the right person at the right time, depending on what's going on in the organization.
1: Yeah. Well, I I know people are going to be interested in this, so we'll definitely have links to the book and to the information about the assessments in the show notes. But I wanted to ask you, I mean, you've had four books prior to this. You've done big book launches, uh, had whole campaigns around it. What's it been like doing a book launch in the middle of a pandemic when you can't be out there on the road speaking on stages in front of thousands of people or going into Fortune 500 clients and talking to their leaders about your message in your book?
0: it's really hard. It is really, 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 really hard. You know, we had a great launch and then it's like, okay, speaking into the black void right now, you know, um, because it's really hard to to gain momentum. I mean, especially with everything going on politically and socially and all the stuff going on right now, there's just so much out there that it's hard to break through any kind of, it's hard to break through the noise of everything that's going on. So we've kind of just taken a long, long term approach to this book you know we believe this this book and this work and the assessment and the business and all the things that we're doing are are going to build over time because we believe it's it's great it's founded in you know science it's not just something we made up this is something that's been going on for decades now so we believe that uh, it's going to continue to grow and influence over time. But mm-hmm. it's been really hard. I mean, it's it, this is not like... I mean, I haven't even seen the book in a bookstore yet. Like normally, that would be one of the first things I do is just go out and kind of... I ritualize that. I go out and I just kind of like go to a, book, a bookstore and like check out my book on the shelf and take a picture and that kind of thing. Haven't had a chance to do that. Now other people have sent photos of the book, like in airport bookstores and stuff, which is cool because people are still going to airports somehow. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I haven't had a chance to do that yet. So I guess maybe at some point, maybe I'll make a trip to a Barnes and Noble at some point and see if I can (laughs) grab a copy or something.
1: Well, I would love for people if, if you do take the assessment to share them with Todd and I on social media or otherwise because I, I always get geeked about what people are finding out about themselves so that they can make an impact as well. So what is next for Todd Henry as we kind of you know you move through the launch and I guess there's another book to be done in another couple of years, <laughs> you know what's next?
0: I'm always working on the next book, right? So I've, I've, I'm stewing right now on what that's going to be. But uh, you know, for now, it's really just trying to get this message out into the world in in greater form. Because uh, you know, this work found me. I didn't seek it out; it found me. And I kind of feel like this is something really, maybe more than all my other books. This is something I could see myself spending a huge chunk of the rest of my life working on. Because I really feel like it's the base layer for everything else we do. Motivation is the base layer for everything else we do. If we understand what drives us so much of our other behavior is explainable and and we can mitigate some of the negative effects of our, you know, our actions. And so, uh, you know, I, I could definitely see myself working on this for a long time to come. Fantastic.
1: Well, where can people connect with you, Todd?
0: Yeah. So if you want to know more about uh, Motivation Code, you can go to toddhenry.com slash mcode, M-C-O-D-E. Or if you want to know more about me and my work, just go to toddhenry.com fantastic. And we'll share those again in the show notes. Thank you so much for chatting with me
1: today and for working with the team to create this book. I'm really excited about what it will do for everyone else and for me. Thank
0: you. It's time for you to get noticed, create change and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review.